Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. Today, we got one of those surprise guests. I'm very excited to be able to uh, corner him. He's uh, the man of the hour all over this, uh, this convention. We're here with Blake Castleman, the Director of Programming for the Fanex Salt Lake Comic Convention in Salt Lake City. Welcome, Blake. Thank you. <laughs> I, you know, you have so many people you could interview that are in this building right now uh, that are so amazing and so talented and so uh, accomplished. I, I'm, I'm touched that you asked me. Well, I think it's amazing. I've, and I've, because I've interviewed probably 30 people in this in this convention over the last uh, three years since I've had this podcast. But I think it's very special that I'm able to talk with you because FanX is our best convention. We have more people um, that come by and visit our booth and um, Riders of the Future does amazingly well here. We've got so many winners. Salt Lake itself, or actually all of Utah, has more uh, winners of the Riders of the Future contest than any other location um, in the world and so I'd like to be able to talk about that, just like what, what's gone into making this convention such an amazing family-friendly and book-friendly convention. So let's just talk a bit about that. Utah is a place for writers. Utah is a place for readers. And as a result of that, we have probably one of the largest writing tracks of, of comic conventions, pop culture conventions around the country. And I have no shortage of amazing writers to come to the show, to be on panels, and the writing panels do really well. Yeah, we had the panel yesterday with uh, Brandon Sanderson, uh, with uh, S.M. Sterling, Dave Wolverton, or Dave Farland, he, he's, his pen name he goes by right now, uh, Eric James Stone and Darcy Stone, and it was amazing. We had over 250 people attending, great questions, um, just a really, really great panel. There's a, there's a lot of aspiring writers here. Yeah. And I think the fact that we have Brandon Sanderson, we have Eric James Stone, we have Dan Wells, we have a lot of amazing writers that are internationally successful. I think that's really inspired this uh, population of Utah that grew up reading and loving science fiction, loving fantasy, uh, loving to read other genres. And um, I think having these writers so accessible as you go to FanX, as you mm -hmm. go to other conferences and conventions around Utah where these writers show up, I think it's really inspired a lot of people. It's helped a lot of people. It's probably what's led to so many story submissions that you get from yeah. Utah. Yeah, we've got, I mean, three judges that people love us to talk about here are Orson Scott Card, Brandon Sanderson, and uh, Dave Wolverton, Dave Farland. All with Utah ties, even though Orson yeah. Scott Card is over in North Carolina. But I originally connected up him when he was teaching at BYU. He yeah, he was living in Utah when he broke out as a writer back in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. And Dave Farland taught at BYU. And I actually, when I first met Brandon, I went to BYU and spoke as a guest uh, speaker at his creative writing class. And that's when I actually um, invited him to become a judge, and he accepted, because all Dave, Scott, and, um, and uh, 
Brandon, our judges for the Rise of the Future contest, which helps a whole lot too, because we just, I mean, we brought mountains of Rise of the Future books and we really are down. Some of the books have sold out. We had um, one of our winners from volume nine come to do a signing today. We brought half a dozen books because it's, they're rare now to get those. And by the time she arrived, we had one book left and we took it off the shelf this morning when we saw that it was like, we're down to one, what happened? People are coming in buying the whole series because now the early volumes are really rare and people just want those, they're gobbling those up. We have two sizable booksellers here at FanX every year. And this is aside from all the authors that have their own booths or you get teams of authors that, that, that will get into a booth together and they'll have all their books. We have the Printed Garden, which is an independent bookstore in Sandy, which is a suburb of Salt Lake. And then we have Bard's Tower, which is a traveling bookstore right. uh, where the authors set up shop in the booth. Several of which and are winners of Writers of the Future exactly, and judges. Exactly. And it seems like every show, both uh, Bard's Tower and the Printed Garden are kind of able to cohabitate because they both do really well. They, they get a lot of turnout to the signings that they do. And then on top of that, they always talk about how they always bring a little bit more stock of books uh, with the writers they're representing to our show because they've run out. Yeah. They've run out even before we get done with Friday, which is the second day. Yeah. FanX is a little different from most pop culture conventions because we do Thursday, Friday, Saturday instead of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Right. Often uh, the guests we bring in that, that frequent other conventions will say, yeah, it's, it's Saturday, and I, and I think it's Sunday because your schedule throws me off. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of people like that schedule because it allows them to have Sunday as their travel day instead of having yeah. to miss a day of work on Monday. And what's interesting, too, is on Thursday, normally the conventions go morning, they're over like at 6 or 7 o'clock. Right. But the first day it's over at 9 o'clock, so you have the people that come back from work they can still attend the convention that first day. And the same thing also on Friday, where it goes to eight o'clock. Yeah, I, I, I've seen at other conventions and talked to other convention organizers, and they, they talk about after about three or four in the afternoon on Sunday, things, things die. And we kind of have a slow start on Tuesdays, Tuesday afternoon when we start, but it picks up really fast, and it stays really strong on as Thursday far as attendance. Thursday, by the time we get to Thursday evening, Attendance is usually pretty good. Yeah. And then it gets better Friday and Saturday. And, and attendance is on up. Uh, uh, sorry. Attendance remains strong until Saturday evening when, when everything shuts down. So. Yeah. When I was speaking with um, Dan Farr this morning, who's uh, the CEO of, of uh, FanX, and he was talking about the, the attendance is actually more than 2019. Yes. Which is awesome. Yes, our, our attendance, from what I understand, our attendance is closer to 2018, which was bigger than 2019. So we're very happy with these results. We had no idea, you know, I think every show is, that's doing, uh, that's coming back this year, we don't have any idea going in what kind of attendance will be, and so we've been very pleased. Yeah, and it's very special too because We've been shut down for a year and a half, and so now being able to come back and people can get out and actually experience life again. You yes. know, we got you got the mask rules here, which is good. You yes. know, it's, and we're doing temperature checks at the door. Yeah. So it, it's good on that, but you just see so many people are out here and they're just like, 
they're able to live life again. It, that in itself is such therapy for everybody. I think that little sliver of normalcy is what people are looking for. So I really hope that we've been able to provide that, even with the masks, even with, um, you know, there, there, there's other things in place where you, you get little reminders around the building that we're still dealing with COVID. Yeah. And, but it's been wonderful to have people not only here in numbers and enjoying themselves, but all the cosplay. There's some amazing costumes. You can tell some people really took advantage of the year off from doing conventions to put together some amazing costumes. Yeah, I talked to one guy yesterday, and he was just an amazing leather and steel stuff. He said, that's amazing. How much time did you spend? I said, 700 hours. It's like, oh my gosh. I mean, it looked totally amazing, but that's just incredible dedication. And that's, that's part of, you know, this positive outlook. Uh -huh. I mean, the last year and a half have been hard. It's been hard on all of us for different reasons. But for people, for someone to put 700 hours into a costume with the idea of someday we're going to all get back together, we're all going to be in the Salt Palace or whatever convention center enjoying our favorite comic convention or pop culture convention, and I'm going to get to wear this costume. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. It is. It is. It really is. And one thing that's amazing, too, that I think that especially people listening to, the, uh, to this podcast here, is that there's fans everywhere. But when you come to a convention like this, it's a step up. It's like these are the hardcore fans. And so you see these people, when they come over and see our books, like we have the, all the books from Elwin Hubbard. And you see people say, oh, I've read that book, Battlefield Earth, five times. And I've read Mission Earth, oh yeah, I read it when it first came out. You're coming out with it again. I need to get it. You know, so you got these guys that are so dedicated, so hardcore. It's awesome. And like I said, we had mountains of Rise of Future books, and literally, you can see it. It's hardly anything left now. You know, I hope we're. You know, we sold out on a few of them, but it's just that's the kind of audience here, and it's just it's so amazing that you've created this outlet from a state that is so dedicated already to reading. Well, and we started in 2013, so we've, we've we have a few shows under our belt, and I think. Locally, the people here have realized that conventions give them the opportunity to have access to things they can't really get anywhere. I mean, they can't walk into the local store. I mean, maybe they'll maybe they have to do some searching online to order it. But to the convention vendor floor provides so many interesting and unique things for people to buy. Yeah, like you know, you walk into a you walk into a bookstore, and uh, they might have the latest writers of the future on the shelf, but what if you want back copies? That's right. You know, So you come to Fan X, here's the table. Oh, I need volume this, I need volume that. So I think, I think people have been looking forward to that, is, is able to, to, to visit some of their favorite vendors, uh, find some, some new discoveries, and yeah. be able to get a hold of some things that aren't really available yeah. otherwise. Now, is there an actual like mission statement or anything for, for the FanX? <clears throat> um, nothing formal, um, but you know, we try and be family friendly. We try to, we try to uh, cater to a lot of different tastes. Like, uh, we, we, we want to 
have panels on cosplay. We want cosplay guests here. We want to have panels on writing advice. We want, we want authors here. We want panels on comic book creation or comic book tips. And we, and we have comic creators here. We, of course, our big draw is the TV and movie stars that come. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great to see people come for specific stars. This year, we have Loretta Swit and Jamie Farr from MASH. And we have a lot of first-time people, attendees here, that are here mainly because they grew up loving MASH. Mm -hmm. They're not really into science fiction. They're not really into fantasy. They're not really into a lot of the other things that traditionally a show like ours represents. But they love MASH. And this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get a photo op or to get a signature and go see Jamie Farr and Loretta Swit. Yeah. You know, because most of the, most of the, the cast of MASH... That's for the boomers. That's what, yeah, <laughs> most, of the, most of the cast of MASH have passed away. You know, and, 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 and um, Alan Alda is still alive, but he's... he's uh, I think he's retired from acting now because of health issues. And, and so... It's fun to do things a little bit outside the box like that because that really is effective in bringing in people that are going to be first-time attendees, and that's mm -hmm. wonderful. And now they can see, oh, they have this. They, you know, they, oh, yeah, I like Star Trek. They have a lot of Star Trek stuff here. Yeah, uh, I went over there because we have some friends over there in the, in the celebrity line, and so we spent some time with uh, Marty Cove, who's been a longtime friend. Yeah, the Cobra yeah. Kai actors have been a big draw this year yeah and you know people love that show and uh you know but there's you know we've, we've been able to have zachary quinto here and that's gotten the star trek fans excited and yeah so we i met actually tom arnold yesterday because the person who's, a, who's his handler is a good friend of ours from the hollywood christmas parade so now he's going to join that in with us in the hollywood christmas parade because we're the we're the green room for the christmas parade Yes, the fans have loved Tom Arnold. Yeah. He's been so genuine and so fun to be with yeah. as, a, as a guest. So it's just great over there and just... Now, how many exhibitors do you have here? I was just, I was shocked. We actually have less than normal. I can't give you an exact number, but, you know, like, like we talked about earlier, we're still in COVID, and there's people that normally come that did not, and so they're... We're looking forward to seeing them next year. But my point being is that because of COVID going on right now, I mean, you've got two halls that are virtually just packed out. Yes. That's what, that's what my reference, not, not yes. like compared to other times, like for yeah. this time right now, so many people are out here and you've got like over, over 40,000 people. Yes. And we have, uh, we have some attractions here, like we have a wrestling ring. I know I was going to just bring that up. The Reds is like, wow. That's been very popular. And they're just local wrestlers. You know, we don't have any WWE wrestlers yeah. here. They're just local guys, but they're putting on a great show. Oh, it's amazing seeing we have a We have a stage here in the convention floor where... See, like cosplays with all the, the Ren Fair, yeah, like their yeah, the, sword we fighting. Yeah, the ar armored combat. And yeah. We have a lip sync contest, and we had a geek fashion show last night. We have musicians that come on, and we have we have uh, podcast people come on and do a trivia contest with the. Well, yeah, and then Emily, our guest yesterday on the uh, um, Salt Lake City Fanex uh, TV, 
Yes. That was going on. So we were guests on that, talking about Rise That's of the That's our first time doing that, is the FanX TV. And that was just, great. It's an amazing setup you've got for yes, that. Yes, yes. And we're just highlighting some of our... Brandon Sanderson was, was interviewed on it. S.M. Sterling was interviewed on it. Um, as was Kevin J. Anderson. Yeah. And... You know, we've been we've been able to highlight some of our top artists and author, and we've brought some of our vendors on, so that they can talk about what they're doing here, yeah. talk about what they're selling at their booths, and so this is a, this is kind of an experiment, but we're uh, we're broadcasting these interviews and some other mm -hmm. material from from the show here, and we're sending it out on our YouTube channel. And yeah, you said it was on Twitch TV, Twitch on TV. YouTube, and on Facebook Live. So yes. That's great. And yeah, so we'll see. We'll, we'll be able to see what kind of numbers, how many eyeballs we got uh, during the show. Yeah. But it's a wonderful way, different way. It's, it's fun to try different things. And For sure. Some things work great. Some things, I mean, when we first opened, Artist Alley was in the back corner of the hall because nobody knew where to put Artist Alley. And then yeah. Neil Adams, who came to our second show, He's a one of the all-time great comic book artists. He said, "No, you should put Artist Alley up by the front entrance where people are coming in from mm -hmm. registration." He thought that's a great idea, and we've kept it there ever since. And it's great; it's packed. You got—I mean, it's it's huge. Yeah, yeah. Our Artist Alley is probably more than twice the size it was even just a few years ago. Yeah, no, it's and, and we still have waiting lists. So. Yeah, I've. Because we have various of our illustrators, the future winners, who are there exhibiting, and so I went to go see them. And um, no, it's just it's just amazing. So I'm just curious because with this much activity and there's a lot of um, moving pieces, so how much time? When do you have to start actual organizing in earnest? Non-COVID years, we usually start uh, about six to eight weeks after the. Previous show ends. Yeah. Uh, this year we 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 started we started in earnest in January, but we really couldn't start the ball, ball rolling with a number of things until May. Because you so, had to find out if it was going to be okay to even have it. Yeah, and 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 was there going to have to be a limited number of people in the building? Right. Uh, were we going to be able to use the whole build? I mean, there were so many questions that needed to be answered until we could really figure out what we were doing. So it was a busy summer with yeah. getting the later start. But, you know, everyone came together. We, got a, we have a wonderful staff, wonderful team. Uh, many of us have been with the, with the show for years, and, and uh, it, we knew we'd get things together. It was weird in some ways trying to get back into the swing of things. Yeah. You don't realize how much out of practice you get when you take a year off from something or 18 months off from yeah. something. We tried to keep our fans engaged during the pandemic. We did, we did some... You did your virtual last we year. We did some virtual panels. We didn't try and do a whole virtual show like, like some other conventions did. But we tried to do like weekly virtual panels or, or, or two a week. Uh, we tried. We got some celebrities involved, some people that were trying to promote some things. We got them involved. We had some fun fan panels. Um, you know, they, they, we had a, Terry Brooks came on and did a, a virtual panel. You know, he's a he's a great friend of the show. Yeah. Um, and and 
you know, it was it was with varying degrees of success, but we were happy to keep engaged. But a virtual panel is not like the real thing. Yeah, that's a fact. A, a, a virtual, trying to do a virtual vendor floor is not like the real thing. No, we did, we did a couple conventions with the virtual and it just, I mean, it was, it was a nice try, but it just, there's no, there's no substitute for actual face-to-face -face or mask-to-mask -mask right now. Yeah. You know, um, confronting people and showing this stuff in, in live communication, it just makes such a difference. And I'm just curious, and if you can say it, it'd be great, like, how size, you know, you've got your, your core team, and then you've got your volunteers, you get various tiers of volunteers. Can you talk about what the different sizes you've got to pull, on, pull off a convention with 40,000 uh, attendees? Um, our staff, our core staff is, is like 11 people outside of ownership. And then we probably have a few dozen, uh, we call them volunteer managers, that usually are engaged with helping us different places. For like for programming, I have, I have six managers, volunteer managers I work with. Um, usually, the closer we get to the show, the more engagement we have. Yeah. But then I have a, a programming committee that's about 12 volunteers, and they're just resources I use to, to help me make some decisions. Um, I like having that collaborative. Yeah. Um, I'm involved in independent film, and I like, I like that collaborative world you know, when you're, you're doing something creative. And there is a, there is a creativity to for sure. putting a, a, a programming for a convention together. And so beyond the, the, the volunteer managers, there's some that work with marketing, there's some that work with our customer service, there's some that work with, with um, what we call, with, with operations. There's some that work with, you know, Dan Farr's team, we call that the executive team. So we have, we have volunteer managers, and then when we, the show itself, uh, we have upwards to, to 500 or more volunteers. Uh, you know, this year has been, again with COVID, it's been more of a challenge. Um, do you post, is it just word of mouth or do you post on social? How do you, how do you get the? There's an organization that was created partly because of this convention called the League of Utah Volunteers. And they have an online website with a portal to, to volunteer, there's a portal for different events that you can go in and volunteer through. Mm -hmm. So FanX has its own portal. So to volunteer for FanX, you go to the League of Utah Volunteers website, and then you go through the FanX portal, and that's how you formally volunteer to to, to be part of FanX. And we we have a lot of volunteers that have been with us for years. They're like yeah. family, and 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 we always. We always look forward to seeing them every show, yeah. and they, they come back, and they recruit people, and, and um, we're missing some people this year because uh, somebody has COVID, or their ch child's come down with COVID, or just other reasons. It's, it, there, there's been some challenges, but I'm, I'm sure every show that is- Oh, for sure. You know, this summer and into the fall will, will have their, their own set of challenges, so. We're very lucky that we have a group of, we have a staff and group of volunteers that rise to the occasion. Yeah. So now with, um, how does it go on working with the city? Because I know, I mean, I've been 
connected like with um, San Diego Comic Con, with uh, Atlanta, with Dragon Con, and sometimes there's like in San Diego, the city for the first 20 years just could care less about the Comic Con, and they were they they were even doing things to uh, they had their the baseball team there was having games during Comic Con. It was just like it was a nightmare until Comic-Con started looking at leaving, and then they just kind of went, whoa, 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 whoa. What does Fanex do for Salt Lake City, and what kind of, of um, relationship do you have with the local um, uh, mayor and, and uh, the people here? We have a very good relationship. Um, I think it's taken a little bit longer for the businesses to catch on that, you know, this is a real opportunity for them with how many people are congregating in our downtown area. Because it seems like you're bringing easily 30, 40, 50 million dollars of revenue into the city. I haven't heard exact numbers, but yeah, you would think that it's substantial. Yeah. But we've always been very uh, well taken care of by the state leaders. I think they caught on pretty early that, yeah. that this was an important thing for the state. Uh, Sean Reyes, the attorney general for Utah, has, we've had a really good relationship with him through the years. I think he's a little bit of a geek. So that's helped. <laughs> that doesn't hurt at all. <laughs> um, former Governor Gary Herbert, uh, when he he uh, he loved uh, his opportunities to have some chats with William Shatner. Sure. When 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 Mr. Shatner's come, um, and and there's been other people that have gotten involved. Um, Twisted Tunes, which is one of our most popular panels is where the voice actors read movie scripts and do and instead of you know they'll, they'll read a star wars script and luke skywalker will be done in winnie the pooh's voice oh. you know, stuff like that um members of the mormon tabernacle choir came out and did some singing one one really? year during oh, twisted how cool tunes is that? this year uh members of the utah state symphony came to do a panel on 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 music and movies because they do these cool shows where they play the, they play the movie, like a Harry Potter or a Star Wars movie, but then the the symphony will play the soundtrack music to the movie live. Wow! So they came to do a panel to talk about that process. So and there's been other local leaders. The Salt Lake City's mayor has gotten involved in some things in the past. That's so and, good. And uh, I think. Uh, some some recognition has been given to to Dan Farr and and, and uh, some of the other people at the top with with Fanex and and uh, some of the actors have been given uh, special recognition. Mm -hmm. So it, it's been nice. Everyone's ver we hear over and over that everyone's in this city is is very warm and friendly towards our our guests and our and the people that come to Fanex yeah. to, to visit. Oh, that's great, yeah, because it's, it's important. If a city embraces a convention, it makes it so much better as, I mean, I'm an exhibitor, but either as an exhibitor or as an attendee to come in and just enjoy it because the whole city's kind of like getting into the, the whole vibe of that convention. Yeah, it's, and I think, I think that relationship with the city and the local population, and I mean the local population that, that isn't actively coming to the show. I think it's growing. I mean, the first few years I talked to, I talked to people in my neighborhood or 
other people I knew that, that didn't know much about our show and they'd ask what I was doing for a living. I'd tell them, they're like, oh yeah, that's, that's the one with all those people walking around wearing the crazy costumes. And so I think over the past seven or eight years, they've kind of realized that no, it's, it's something more than just people wearing crazy costumes yeah. around town. It's Yeah, when I got here, the uh, first thing we do when we come to conventions, we always go to the local Whole Foods and we buy up on all the, you know, what we have for breakfast and then we bring foods here so we have some healthy food so we don't just snack ourselves with, with uh, unhealthy food. But talking on the checkout stand, you know, we say, yeah, we're here for the Fanex. Oh, that's so cool. But that's like 20 minutes away, you know? So mm -hmm. it definitely has, it made its mark and continues to expand as, you know. Whenever I talk to people now that have never come out, uh, instead of this, oh yeah, that's not for me, more often people say, oh yeah, I should, I should check it out one day. Yeah. And I was like, absolutely. I mean, it's this, this, is, this is pop culture. This is what Hollywood has totally embraced with all the big blockbusters are what you see here. You know, and that's, and that's where the costumes you see now is they're, they're emulating what they see in the Hollywood movies. But the Hollywood movies get that because of just how much society embraces that culture. Yes. When I was a kid, when I was in high school, <clears throat> I, I, I walked around with a book. I took a book to every class just in, time, in case there was time to read. So I had my Stephen King novels. I had my fantasy novels. I had Battlefield Earth. I had, I had lots of other fantasy and sci-fi. People knew I read that. However, very few people I knew growing up knew that I read comic books. I collected comic books. Very few people knew that I was, I was crazy for Star Wars and Star Trek because I didn't want to deal with the grief that I saw other people get. Mm -hmm. So it's wonderful nowadays to not have to hide stuff like that. It seems weird <laughs> that back in the 80s when I was a kid, I had to hide my fandoms. I had to hide the fact that I loved Marvel and Star Wars yeah. and Star Trek and anime. It was just strange. Even though at the time it was like, yeah, no one's, that's just no one out, of, no one outside of a few select friends are going to know about this. And now how it's just part of our culture now, comic books. People go to work wearing their favorite T-shirts. When I was dating my wife, she was going to school and living on campus at an apartment, and I was hanging out, and she was doing something in her kitchen. At the time. Uh, one of the local channels here in Utah, they would do the local newscast and then they would show a, a rerun of Star Trek The Next Generation. And so I was like, cool. And so I started watching this episode of Star Trek. She comes in finally and sits down next to me and she's like, what are you watching? I'm like, Star Trek. And she started laughing. Like, really? <laughs> Fast forward. 28, 28 years later, she's a bigger Star Trek fan than me. <laughs> so it's, it's just, I think a lot of people grew up with this weird idea that only nerds or antisocial people or wallflowers or basket cases, however, are into this stuff. But no, it's, it's cool. Yeah. It's it's part of our it's part of our culture now. I mean, it's so interesting now to 
to see people walking around with with Iron Man and Captain America t-shirts and you know people that are fans of the Marvel movies whereas I was a kid I I talk about Iron Man and I get blank stares like who you know yeah and you see people too that also combine costumes yes you know that's the, that's the current thing now one thing I've noticed especially with the young people is the is the number of people people dressed as anime characters I think that's become really huge with the with the under 30 crowd yeah I think it's older guys like you and me that are still holding on to like the Lord of the Rings stuff and 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 some of the more established Marvel and DC stuff and Doctor Who and yeah Star Wars it's anime I I'm I'm starting to get an idea of just how big anime is it's, it's becoming it's with the younger kids. It's mega, yeah. So now, because this is the Rise of the Future podcast, so aspiring writers and writers, most around this part now in this question, for a writer, how do they become a participant? How do they get part of programming? How do they get involved? Well, the first thing to do is, you know, obviously be, be published. Sure. Um, winning the writers of the future is carries a lot of weight. Yeah. Um, and then we we look for people that have kind of gotten their feet wet presenting at or doing panels at mm -hmm. smaller conferences. Um, Utah has a lot of great conferences that are mostly geared to writers. There's, there's Life, the Universe, and everything. Mm -hmm. There's... Uh, Which we participate in every year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As I've been going to that forever. Um, and, and that show really kind of put me in the direction I wanted to go as far as my own writing. I'm a screenwriter. Mm -hmm. And that really put me in the direction I wanted to go. Not that there was a lot of screenwriting classes or panels, but I learned so much about character development, about story, about, you know, writing within the three-act structure, because a lot of authors do the same thing. Yeah. And so that really helped me become a better screenwriter is by attending that. There's, uh, there's storytellers. There's, um, there's the League of Utah Writers. They have their conferences. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of opportunities for people who may just be brand new published. Maybe they've done well with Writers of the Future. Maybe they're self-published. Maybe they're with, they've been able to get, get a couple books published with a small press. There's a, there's a great opportunity for them to be part of these smaller things and, and, and start to get some experience. And then, and then contact me or, or find someone, find a writer who's, who's come to FanX and done a panel here and uh, I, I'm always happy a lot of the a lot of the writers who come here every year I've met through other conferences locally mm -hmm. but a lot of them have been recommended through other writers and I trust their their judgment so, so if we have somebody because I'm I'm a regular on my show so <laughs> If anybody listening to this um, in Utah is interested in um, being able to participate in uh, the FanX, 
then you can write to me and I can be easily contacted through the Rise of the Future page and then I will um, uh, work out the pre-qualling as you requested but then I'll, then I'll connect you up then with uh, Blake and with the programming team at, uh, at the FanX convention. You have my email. That's a fact, <laughs> that's a fact. Okay, now talking about writers of the future, so I'm not sure if I became familiar with you first through programming or through the fact that you've been entering writers of the future. I've been entering writers of the future for about, off and on for about 15 years now. I, I tend to, my focus tends to be on screenwriting. Yeah. But um, I've really, I haven't finished that first novel, but I have written a lot of short stories uh -huh. and, I, and I love prose writing. Um, in college, I, I love to write poetry and I've worked really hard at implementing that kind of that, some of that poetic language into my, um, into my prose writing. Two other big influences back, we're going back 15 years, was uh, David Farland. He had his, uh, I went to a, there's a conference, a small conference, mostly uh, focused on writing. It was called Conduit mm -hmm. here in Salt Lake. Yeah. And it was around for about 30 plus years. And uh, that was the first time I saw David Farland give a, give a, a speech. And I got on his email list for his, his, he did something called a David Farland's Daily Kick in the Pants. Daily Kick in the Pants, yeah. And so we would, uh, I would receive a, a daily writing advice, little blog post from him. That was very influential on me. Also, uh, season one or two of, of uh, Writing Excuses with Dan Wells, Brandon Sanderson, Howard Taylor, um, that was something that I listened to frequently, and I would, I would pause and take yeah. copious notes while they were um, for their for their podcasts, and and those two influences really got me going to the point to where I started taking little breaks from my screenwriting, really, and comic book writing to to write short stories and I just started submitting them to writers of the future and you know like everyone the, the first few were really bad but then um, then I had a story that um, was an honorable mention and this was before the silver honorable mention yeah. so honorable mention was honorable that mention was it. that was at like the time. and then I sent in another story uh, not long after that I got a cup I got two or three honorable mentions and then I sent in another story, and it was when Katie Wentworth was the coordinating judge. Coordinating judge. And um, I got to the semifinals. Wow. And that was great. She, uh, she, did, a, she did a critique of the story, which was wonderful for the rewrite. And uh, that story got published in an anthology later. Oh, good. Yeah. I that mean, it was, it, was, it, was, it was wonderful. I've, I've been... I've been published in about a half dozen anthologies. They've all been contributor copy as payment type anthologies, but yeah. I, I love the opportunity to be published. You yeah. know, it, yeah. it took so long to get to that point. It's like, well, I'll send you some contributor copies. I'm like, great, that's fantastic. 
<laughs> I can keep one and I can give one to my best friend, you know? Yeah. So now in terms of just a little bit about your perspective, because I just see how, how you just totally like, you're beaming just talking about getting published. Yeah. Like what Elvin Hubbard created when he started this contest in 83, what that means to, from your perspective, to an aspiring writer? It means everything. It means, it, it, it almost means you're validated. And yeah, it'd be nice to, to, to be part of that elect group of people that get paid, or even more so, are able to make a living out of it. Uh -huh. I know that's a very small percentage of writers, but it's a real validation for someone to say, yeah, this is a good story. This is what we're looking for. This fits what we're looking for. Right. Because I learned pretty early, and, and, and I think my screenwriting efforts helped this. I learned pretty early that you can't take rejection serious. You can't take it personally. Yeah. And you also can't keep it from your goals. I mean, when I first started getting rejected, I would go two weeks, three weeks, uh, without writing another word, just because it was so hard to deal with it. And then I got to a point where I was like, you know what, this is really, this isn't productive. So I, I, I created for myself the one day rule. I have one day to feel bad about the rejection. And as soon as that one day is over, and I've even had some half days, but even, but, but when that half day or that one day is over, you get back on that computer and you start writing. And so, like every writer, you have to deal with a lot of rejection. You I mean, Kevin Anderson, has, he said he had the most rejection, whether it's true or not, but he had like 700 rejects that he's had yeah. in his. I don't even think I've surpassed 50 yet with my rejections. So 700 is just, is, that's phenomenal. But he's also one of the highest paid authors right now exactly. also in the industry. Exactly. And I, and I know where my, what I need to do still. I mean, I'm, I'm 52 years old, but that's okay. Yeah. You know, I, there's still things I want to write. I have my whole list of, of, of story ideas I want to get to. Yeah. And so I still have a lot of work to do. And you never know when you write something, show it to some trusted people, get some feedback, people that aren't worried about hurting your feelings, mm -hmm. and take the feedback that really resonates with you and write the next draft. And then write the draft after that. Put it, like Stephen King says, put it away for two weeks. And then work on something else, and then when the two weeks is up, take it out of the drawer or, or go back to it in your computer hard drive or wherever you're storing it. Take a look at it. You got some fresh eyes looking at it. Yeah. You're like, oh, that doesn't work. Oh, that's a dumb line. You know, and you fix things. Right. And then eventually you write something that um, you send out and somebody says, yeah, this works. We like this. It's a business decision. That's why you can't take it personally. Yeah. And I know, I know that every... Every writer probably on your podcast has said that. The other thing that happens too is that you send it to an editor, you don't know what the editor's going through that day. It may just be a really bad day, and so he's got a foul disposition, so everything that crosses his desk, ah, 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 he doesn't like it. Or the magazine that you sent it to 
just published a story like that in the last issue and yeah. they're not gonna do it for another three months. So they don't reject it there too. So it's, it might not even be because it was a bad story. It just could, it could be for something totally disrelated to the quality of your story. I recently optioned uh, my graphic novel, Devil's Triangle, with a Hollywood producer, screenwriter. And uh, right now he's working on adapting it into a TV series. Why? Because a friend of his has a film script that's very similar to our graphic novel that he's shopping around and that he has some interest with some producers and some studios. And he's like, um, I'm going to do this as a TV series because I don't want to go into competition with my friend trying to push, oh, here's a, another Devil's Triangle movie idea. Right. So, yeah, timing is everything. And that's another reason why you can't say, oh, it's because for reason whatever, they don't like me. They don't know you. They don't know you exactly. But you have to take the little victories. You have to take, you know... If you, if you get an honorable mention or a silver honorable mention, the last story I sent in to Writers of the Future got a silver honorable mention. It's now the basis for a fantasy novel I want to write. I want to expand. I want to take the characters. This is kind of the short story is kind of the prequel. Mm -hmm. I want to take the characters and write a, what happens after the short story. That's awesome. But having it be a, a, a silver honorable mention for Writers of the Future said, okay, this is an idea that was executed well enough that you should take it and try and do something more with it. Yeah. And so that gave me the confidence. Because I had taken kind of a, I'd taken like a five-year break from writing prose. And I was like, you know, I want to start writing short stories again. So I took this one. It was kind of a, I, it was an idea I, I originally wrote in a creative writing class in college. And so it was a really old story, and I took little pieces of it and fastened it into like an urban fantasy story. Oh, that's great. And so um, I really didn't know how this would do because I felt like I was so out of practice writing prose. Mm -hmm. But I had continued writing screenplays. I had continued writing comic book scripts. And so I had continued writing. I had continued dealing with story. I had, I had continued dealing with structure and with characters right. and with execution of ideas. And so it was very gratifying to come back, to write a short story mm -hmm. after not writing for prose for five years, send it to Writers of the Future, and have it do that well. That's... that's when I talk to, to people who get their honorable mentions or silver honorable mentions, that's, you know, I get that over and over and over again. But what's also special about that too is when people start putting on, I'm, you know, I've received honorable mentions or silver honorable mentions or a finalist in Writers of the Future, any of the three of those categories on someone's resume will normally take the person's work out of the slush pile and get it read by the editor just because oh, yeah. they can say that. Oh yeah, I, I use Writers of the Future a lot. I have the I have the semifinal story and then I have the silver honorable mention. So yeah, yeah that's that's in the resume now. So Yeah, it's just because it's been around. Now we're just about ready to end year thirty-eight at the end of this month, at the end of September. So it's just been going on and now it is just it is so well known. We have entries for both the writers and illustrators contests from over 175 countries. We've had winners for nearly fifty countries. And it's, um, 
it just goes on and on. The, the judges that we have are the best names in, in the genre. Absolutely. That's another thing that is really important to me and other writers who get an honorable mention or, 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 in, or are a semi-finalist is we know the caliber of judging. You know, a lot of screenplay contests yeah. out there, they're saying, yeah, so-and-so from this agency or so-and-so from this production company is one of the judges, but if you do some research, you find out they're, they're, they're the person that the company sent or that the agency sent to go be a judge. Yeah. But writers of the future, you have some of the most amazing talent in science fiction and fantasy reading your story yeah. and judging it, and it's anonymous. Yeah. They have no idea who they're reading. They it's a, no it's a number in a story. Yeah. So, and which reminds me, I've, I've you know, now that FanX is ending, <laughs> I have 10 days to get the story I've been trying to get to, <laughs> into this quarter. <laughs> I have 10 days to get it, the, 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 the latest revision done and get it out to you guys. Good. So. <laughs> yeah, we've been really pushing to get uh, everybody to, to get their stories in. And, you know, this, this year's uh, volume 38, it's just amazing because because the number of entries that come in, just the quality of story, and since we did the, um, the Elvin Hubbard Rise of Future Online Writing Workshop, we've got like f over 5,000 people on or through it, and the quality of stories is, has like markedly increased uh, because they've got Dave Farlin, Orson Scott Card, and Tim Powers teaching you how to write a story. Yeah. And they're talking, the way that it was recorded, they're like, they're talking to you like it's a one-on-one -on -one consultation, you know. It's amazing what, you know, what it's done to increase the quality of storytelling. It's, uh, I remember when I found my first Writers of the Future book, and it was the one that David Farland... Volume 3, that he won. Volume wanted. 3. I was able to purchase it, because I'd never heard of it before. Right. And the stories were just fantastic. And, and that, as a... As a 17-year-old kid, that volume really inspired me. Yeah, and that's the idea of it too, is Rise of Future is also geared towards a specific audience. We're, you know, it's family friendly, you know, it's like science fiction, fantasy, alternate history, and um, dark fantasy, up to 17,000 words. But all the stories in there are geared so it could be in middle school on up. So we don't have the profanity, it's, it's um, that's, you don't really need that to tell a good story. Uh, no sex, you know. Sometimes you can allude to it, but it's different than the act, than the fact of. So it's important that people actually read the books too, like you just said, you read volume three. To read a book to find out what are they looking for, what's, because the people who are publishing Rise of the Future, prior to being published, were amateurs. As soon as they're published, now they, they rank as pro. And that's, and that's how good you have to be to be a professional writer. And like Orson Scott Card said, you know, what's interesting is, you know, you guys get the best and, and what I get is what you don't take. Yeah, I mean, trying to break into any type of art, any of the arts, acting, writing, music, it's really competitive and really hard. And, you know, it took me it took me over 20 years of trying 
to finally get my first short story published. And, you know, not long after that, my first, I, my, my graphic novel, Devil's Triangle, uh, started being published. We published it in, by chapter. Okay. Um, it was, it was uh, two guys that were doing this part-time. Uh, the artist put a lot of work into it. Um, I did the heavy lifting as the writing, but I still feel like I did the easy part. Uh-huh. The artist, but it, the artist really, uh, it took him a long time to get a lot of it done. But it's, but the end result was wonderful. And um, we just, I, what I've learned is that enjoy the process. If you enjoy the process, then yeah, it, it's no fun to be rejected. It's It's no fun to, you know, you think, oh, yeah, I sh hopefully by this time I'll be at this place as a writer. And if you're not there, that can be disappointing. But what I've tried to do is enjoy the process uh -huh. of creating, of having something that myself or that people I'm collaborated with, you start with nothing. You start with an idea. And then you work together, and sometimes it comes together fast. Sometimes it comes together slow. You work by yourself, but it's really gratifying to see the end result. And you may think you've reached the end, uh huh. And then you may realize later, oh, that's why it got rejected. I tried during the during the pandemic. I, I one of my published short stories was um, kind of a a twist on the zombie genre that happens inside mostly a suburban home. Well, my production company, Rare Legend Films, we're trying to put together a, a, a five horror film deck of screenplays. And they're mostly low budget. They're written with low budget in mind. And they're mostly one location. So one of the screenplays I wanted to add to this deck was a screenplay adaptation of the short story that was published. And the story, short story was published years ago, mm -hmm. and I hadn't read it for a long time. And so going through this novel, or this short story, trying to expand it to a feature-length screenplay, right. I was trying to reach at least 85 pages, but I, wanted, I was hoping to get to, to at least 90 or more. There were things in the short story, and this was published. This was accepted by an editor mm -hmm. to be part of a published anthology by a small press, but there are things in the story that I almost wish I had another crack at revising it. Because there were, there, were, there were elements of the story or decisions that I made that I suddenly felt like, oh, that could have been done differently or that could have been done right. better. Right. And that's what I mean about enjoy the process. And so I, I had this opportunity to say, okay, I can't change the story that's published in the anthology, but I'm going to do some different things in adapting it into a screenplay. That makes sense in just learning and, like I said, enjoying the process and just keep, keep the eye on the mountain, whatever your, whatever your mountain is. Yeah. And if you never make a dime off your writing, let's say you've self-published some things, let's say you get in some anthologies, where contributor copies is your payment. Let's say you, you, you 
get published on some other things online where there's no payment, that's wonderful. That's an accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, it's not where most aspiring writers want to be, but you can be proud of the fact you started with an idea and you created something out of nothing and it was made available for other people to read somewhere. That's actually so true because a lot of people will get into, they're so used because of the rejections, they go, it goes on automatic self-rejection. Oh, I didn't make this or it wasn't that. It's like, you intended to do something and you did it. That's an accomplishment. Yes. So now you can strive for a better goal next time, but you did it, you're now published. We made, we spent five years making a movie, a feature length movie called Adopting Trouble. We couldn't find a distributor for it. So we decided to self-distribute it. We had it on, on we, couldn't, we didn't have the money to, to, to do DVD or Blu-ray copies. So we had the digital copy of the film on Amazon to rent or to buy. And now it's, 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 I guess Amazon is getting rid of a lot of stuff that doesn't really sell. Uh, and so we're no longer on Amazon anymore. So now we're looking at how else can we market our film? Right. Again, without a whole lot of money. Um, I joke and say, you know, do dozens of people have seen our film. <laughs> It may be close to the truth. I know. I know that. Uh, I know that it showed up on a on a lot of illegal streaming sites. But the joy of that film is not that we made a whole lot of money off it. The joy of that film was that we made it, and that people have seen it. Which is absolutely correct. Right perspective on it stuff as you keep on building up, and that's something that writers need to have. And it's. Um, and this is why I was really happy to be able to have you on as a guest on this podcast, because I wanted to talk about Fanex, but I also want to talk about you as an aspiring writer having entered the contest and what your, your personal curve has been as a writer from that first submission, getting honorable mention, silver honorable mention as a screenwriter. And I think this is really important that the aspiring writer and artist for that matter too, be able to get this. So I really appreciate your taking time to, to be with me on this podcast. Thank you. I've loved I've loved talking with you about this. Great. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on United Public Radio Network, as well as SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Blake. Thank you. <laughs>